thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. The United States Navy has the fourth largest Air Force in the world. Comprised of hundreds of thousands of pieces of support equipment and spare parts, tens of thousands of officers and sailors, thousands of aircraft, hundreds of squadrons, and nearly a dozen nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, only one officer is ultimately responsible for the manning, training, and equipping of this massive force. That officer is a commander, Naval Air Forces, or simply, the Air Boss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat. My name is Vincent Aiello. I am your host. And on this episode, we are, again, going to skip straight to the interview because we are fortunate to have a distinguished visitor joining us in studio today. Originally from St. Petersburg, Florida, this gentleman graduated with honors from the U.S. Naval Academy and was selected for pilot training. He flew the A-7E Corsair and later transitioned to the F-A-18 Hornet and eventually the Super Hornet. He commanded a fleet Hornet squadron, the East Coast F-A-18 Hornet and Super Hornet Training Squadron, and a carrier air wing. Upon attaining flag rank, he commanded two deploying carrier strike groups, was the head of aviation officer placement for the Navy Personnel Command, and served as Commander Naval Air Forces Atlantic. His final tour was as the Navy's 7th Commander Naval Air Forces, responsible for all U.S. Navy aviation units, including personnel, aircraft, equipment, and the nation's fleet of aircraft carriers. He retired from active duty in early 2018, following more than 35 years of distinguished service, having amassed over 4,400 flight hours and 1,066 carrier landings. His decorations include six Legion of Merit awards, the Defense Meritorious Service Medal, and three Air Medals, including one individual award with Combat V. He holds a bachelor's degree in systems engineering from the U.S. Naval Academy. He completed the Naval War College non-resident program and is a graduate of the Joint Forces Staff College. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, Vice Admiral Mike Shoemaker, U.S. Navy, retired. Sir, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jello. Great to be with you and your listeners. As I said up front, I'll probably have an initial caveat on, you know, I retired on the 1st of March. Change of command was 11th of January. So that's three months away from being air boss, but I think still relevant for the topics we'll talk about today. <laughs> I turned over to a, a very good friend of mine to lead Naval Aviation, Chip and Ellen Miller, and Bullet, his call sign, I think is doing some great work. And we spent a lot of time talking about the issues we'll talk about today. And I think he's continued to just carry the load and uh, and work very hard to support our men and women in naval aviation. So great to be with you. Great. Well, for sure. And I know he is carrying the torch that you held. And you know, I'd like to be able to say that my secretary phoned your secretary and we set all this up. But in fact, I think what? I bumped into you in the fitness center on base the other day, right? Yeah, I'm able to do that a little more often now. Well, you know, I'm sure retired. that's a good thing. Okay. 
Outstanding. Uh, so well, let's get right into it. Uh, you enjoyed what I think can only be described as a successful Navy career. What originally inspired you to join the military, specifically naval aviation? Well, interestingly, my growing up, I had a younger brother who was a big Dallas Cowboy fan. And uh, obviously, Roger Staubach was one of their stars in the heyday and knew that he went to the Naval Academy. And my brother was very interested in that. I was not so much. I worked some other options, ROTC, scholarships and things like that. Eventually got to the Naval Academy a year ahead of him. And so coming out of there, I, you know, and I looked at, looked at it, said great education, a, you know, a secure job as you finish up with a little bit of a commitment. And then my roommate and I were both engineers, and we were actually toying between nuclear power or aviation. And then it was a, a summer in Pensacola, exposed to the what would be my my future for the next 35 years. And we each looked at each other and said, we, we can't spend our time underwater. We've got to be flying. So we ended up down in Pensacola together. And uh, I'd say the rest is history, but I've, I've never looked back and enjoyed amazing career, but working with some amazing folks in naval aviation. Oh, for sure. I always say it was the flying that brought me to the Navy and the people that kept me. That's a great way to put it. But I'm glad you put it that way because we talked about on this show, the midshipman summer tours. In fact, in the one poor kid who, uh, you know, was flying with an F-5 up in Fallon and first flight in the Navy ever and had a takeoff, but not a landing, but he still came back to aviation and it sounds like you did too. So, all right. So you didn't join thinking I'm going to spend the next almost third of a century doing this? I, no, my wife will tell you, we've been getting out of the Navy since 1989. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and we just, I mean, we've taken every tour and looked at what was next and both agreed we'll, we'll keep staying. And we, together, we felt like we were making a difference. And that was the kind of the benchmark we used. And so we've been very lucky. Outstanding. Of the many squadrons and organizations you were a part of, and in many cases commanded, uh, which assignment would you say now, looking back, did you enjoy the most and why? That's a really hard question. You know, I was, uh, I was blessed as a junior officer to work for some amazing leaders. Grog Johnson, Admiral Johnson, retired as a four-star at Navier. He was a skipper when I was a JO. When I was a department head, Pat Walsh, who retired as a four-star out of PAC Fleet, was a skipper and, uh, and had some amazing leaders to learn from all the way up. But I think, as most folks will tell you, your first time in command, and I had three tours in the same squadron. So I got, it was VFA 105, the gunslinger. So I was a JO there, department head, and then came back as the XO and CO. Very cool. And that command tour, I think, it's one of those places you've got about 220 or so folks in the command. You know everybody. You're focused on a mission. The timing was great to kind of work in the command tour, to work up for a deployment, go on the deployment, airborne change command on deployment. But a really neat group of both junior officers and sailors in that command. Now, you mentioned up front a couple of strike group tours. That was also, you know, that's very unusual that you would get that. And, and I won't go into the details of how I ended up back on a second strike group, but I think in that leadership position, and I'll say in the command tour and then an air wing tour, I never participated very little in, in combat operations. Timing just was never never right. But then back as a, as a strike group commander, both on Lincoln with Air Wing 2 and on John C. Stennis with Air Wing 9, we had an opportunity every evening you watch the young men and women come back from their missions over, it was Afghanistan at the time, Operation Enduring Freedom, and mm-hmm. watch those young junior officers talk about what they're doing on those missions to manage all the, the, I mean, the strategic effects and impacts of not doing things right, managing the rules of engagement, figuring out the collateral damage of if they drop a bomb, figuring out how to meet commander's intent without dropping a bomb, and then uh, obviously work through all the positive ID and, and many times talking to, to controllers on the ground who aren't speaking English or very broken English. So to watch those young men and women every evening and just continue to perform 
amazingly, it just gives you an opportunity to, I think, celebrate and really recognize the excellence that's naval aviation. So those tours were, I think, very memorable as well. For sure. Now, we've talked on the Fighter Pilot Podcast about squadrons before, and I think the listener is familiar with that. Can you just briefly tell us, though, what is a strike group? So a strike group, it's the air wing and the carrier plus the escort ships that all deploy together, essentially. You may disaggregate and do different missions once you get to eventually where you're going. For us, it was 5th Fleet in the uh, Arabian Gulf, both of those deployments. You've got four major commanders, the air wing commander, the carrier CO, a surface officer who's running the cruiser that's typically your escort, an air-to-air platform, air defense platform, and then another surface uh, warfare officer who's the DESRON commander, so all the other surface ships that come with you. So those four major commanders are kind of your key folks as you're running the the carrier strike group and employing that carrier strike group. And you're speaking to the combatant commanders for that area? You are. You'll you actually work for the numbered fleet commanders in the in that AOR okay. who are are the you know the sure. um, combatant fifth, commander. Yeah, fifth fleet in, uh, in that example. Absolutely. Okay. So you were the man in charge of thousands of people, hundreds of airplanes, and probably a dozen or so ships. Yeah. So, okay. Well, buck stop there. Outstanding. All right. Well, over 4,000 flight hours and 1,000 carrier landings is an impressive accomplishment as well. Is there one particularly memorable flight you could share with the listener? So I'll tell you, you said 1,000 carrier landings. Your 1,000th carrier landing is probably very memorable. And I had a chance to do that with VFA-81. We were down in the, in the Caribbean. And it actually, it was my 999th. I thought it was a, a reasonable landing. Um, as you know, in the, in the F-18, it will give you, it'll tell you if your landing was a little hard or if there were some codes that you might have popped. Right. You know? and, and so I actually did. I went right to the catapult after that. And as I'm sitting on the catapult, I can feel the airplane kind of tilt to one side. And oh, so no. there's a strut <laughs> that, that essentially collapses. And, I, and, I, and the LSOs, you know, they didn't notice anything on the landing. So I, I didn't fess up. So we spin off, jump in a new airplane, so I have to swap out, hot seat into another airplane for that 1,000th landing, and then go down to the airframers, as we always do, buy them a case of beer when we got into port for the extra work that I caused because of that. But that was memorable. I think there was my last flight as a pilot in command was off the Abraham Lincoln, and that was the last day of our Operation During Freedom missions that we were flying on that deployment. And I had a chance to fly with the carrier CO in my backseat in a Super Hornet with Sarge Alexander, who's now our third fleet commander out here. And as we went into the AOR, the Air Wing Commander sent on the first day was all of our junior officers led all the missions. All of our um, Top Gun trained, most of our weapons tactics officers were the leads on all those missions on day one of our uh, Enduring Freedom operations. And on the last day, the last round of folks in country were the, all the squadron commanding officers. And so I finished up, as, and all I did was fly tankers around the ship. So it was, I was safe. <laughs> I didn't go too far. Right. And, uh, and Admiral Alexander, now Admiral Alexander, was in my back seat. And, uh, and we finished up all the COs landed. We took a picture there with all of them in, in finishing up on our last uh, day of operations. And that, as I look back, and I never get a chance to fly you know, as pilot command again after that. Flew numerous times with other folks, but never in the front seat of a Super Hornet. So that was, that was a memorable one as well. I can imagine. It's hard to give it up, isn't it, after a lifetime of doing it? It is. It is. But, you, you know, it, it's... I, I miss it, but again, when you get in an airplane, as you know, we want to be credible. You don't right. want to embarrass yourself. So right. it, it takes a lot of time to, to be good, and your time is fairly compressed as air boss doing other things, but still very enjoyable. For sure. 
Previously on the show, we've discussed aircraft carrier operations and the roles and responsibilities of the air boss who oversees them. Now, as you just said a second ago, in your final role in the Navy as CNAF, or the air boss, uh, you had roles and responsibilities not just for the flight deck, but for all of naval aviation. Can you describe some of those for us? Uh, you bet. Air boss, or the commander of Naval Air Forces, and Naval Air Forces Pacific is a type commander, which means that you are, so I'm partnered with my uh, East Coast type commander, Airland, you know, commander of Naval Air Forces Atlantic. And between the two type commanders, we are the ones that do all the manning, the training, and equipping of our aviation forces. All of our squadrons, 160, 70 squadrons worth, all of our carriers, you know, air wings, and then our shore-based staffs. And in some cases, even though they're under Naval Installations Command, we do a lot with our Naval Air Stations, the bases themselves as well. So our responsibility is to generate readiness, deploy forces that are ready for those taskings around the world. And we do that with the help of amazing staff members on both Airland and AirPAC and Air Forces staff. Um, as well as all the subordinate staffs that do that. And so in addition, as the air boss, you're responsible for the, kind of setting the policies, priorities, the future direction of naval aviation. And you do that, again, combined with Air Lant, talking to him, and then the other key player is, is N-98, our director of air warfare in the Pentagon, who essentially has naval, naval aviation's checkbook. And I had the privilege to work very closely with uh, a great American, Mike Nasty Manazer there, and um, for many of, for my start of the Air Boss tour through probably two thirds of the way through, and then Bullet Miller took over from Nasty, and Bullet was the one that relieved me as Air Boss. But those are the kind of the the day to day things we're doing: man, train, equip the fleet, and to ensure that we're deploying forces that are ready for for tasking. So when you were a strike group commander, you were out there deployed, getting it done. But as Air Boss, you were providing the forces or the training, at least, and the equipment and whatnot for those combatant commanders to get out there and get it done. That's that's a great way to put it. Okay. Um, I would say, you know, I'm a producer of readiness as a as the air boss, a consumer of readiness as a strike group commander or an air wing commander. Gotcha. Okay. So what kinds of issues required your attention most often day to day as air boss? Probably the biggest challenge in the three years as air boss was just the readiness of the force. And it you know, it starts in, I look back at my last testimony to Congress and you work through the Budget Control Act of 2011. We were already deploying, operating the force very heavily post 9-11. So we were engaged around the world. So those operations, that op tempo didn't let up at all. Then we hit the Budget Control Act in 2011. And it significantly, across all DOD, but certainly inside Navy, it impacted the funding levels that paid for readiness. And I'll say not just flying hours. They did a pretty good job of trying to keep the flying hours where they needed to be. But you can't just keep flying airplanes without all the underlying what I'll call readiness enabler accounts that pay for your parts, that pay for the infrastructure that supports the things we do, the support equipment that goes into that, and certainly paying for people so you ensure you've got the right manning across the for. So six years or so of Budget Control Act from 2011, you know, on, as well as operating every year I was Air Boss and probably for, for the last eight years under a continuing resolution, which meant we started the year with our hands tied with a checkbook based on last year's money. And so it, it never allowed us to keep projects and things moving without interruptions. And it was just a very difficult way to run the force. And and so we took a huge dip over time, uh, years of underfunding those readiness accounts, a huge dip over time in readiness across the force, most acutely in strike fighters, but we felt it in other communities as well. And so I think managing that, um, those readiness challenges, and ensuring that those forces that we were deploying and the next to deploy had what they needed, it came at risk for those that were at home in the other phases of their workups or in a maintenance phase. But as you know, as aviators, we don't ever stop flying and we don't ever stop working on our qualifications and the progression of those quals. 
And so it was frustrating, I think, for junior officers across the force when not deployed that they would not have the full number of airplanes they needed on the flight line or the parts to support that or the, or the hours to get their training done. So they felt like they were still doing what they loved to do. So that I think readiness was probably the biggest challenge in the three years there, and we just kept after it. And I think Bullet's done a great job continuing to, to beat that drum. You know, I've never worked in corporate America, but I have to wonder if a Fortune 500 company has to deal with what we have to deal with. In other words, Apple, Coca-Cola, GM, whatever, you know, if they need to produce whatever it is they produce and they don't have the resources, I mean, they can, I hope, figure out a way to get the resources or, or change what they do. But in a lot of cases in the military, particularly as you well know from that position, your hands are somewhat tied, right? I mean, like you said, either Congress can't pass a budget or, you know, this is the money you get, but here's what we need from you. So you have to get creative. And I can assume there is a bit of frustration there. And it it comes to you, right? Because all the people below you are saying, hey, boss, I need more of this or that or hours or people or parts. Right. right. And that that forces some hard choices and a prioritization across the force that Airland and I would do you know, if not daily, certainly weekly as we as we managed. But I think you make a great point. That's, you know, in corporate America, they have a little more control. You know, they've got obviously the leadership of a company mm-hmm. that's working their revenue generation, profit loss, all those things that we don't worry about. Our bottom line is readiness. Their bottom line is shareholder value. And they're overse- overseen by board of directors. You know, Congress is that board for us in a manner of speaking. But again, they control and dole out the money, make the, the budget assignments, and then eventually give us the money that we need. And that was that was probably the biggest challenge, was convincing them that we needed to get some relief. And there were a few years where we did okay, but we never got ourselves on the right side of, you know, a huge readiness divot we had to dig out of. And I think we are just now with the 18 budget and what I see for 19 and, um, and what Bullet and the team are doing now, I think we're on at least a good glide slope to dig back out. Excellent. Did you ever end up briefing Congress? I did. Um, I talked to them once as part of our physiological episodes. We may get to some of that in the uh, T-45 okay. discussion. Mm-hmm. But Admiral Grossglags, the commander of Naval, uh, Naval Air Systems Command, and I both, it was supposed to be a round table. It turned more into a hearing with, <laughs> with us at one end and all the, uh, all the, member, the uh, yeah, <laughs> all the members uh, up in their seats. And so I did that once, and then I did a, a readiness testimony in my last year with all the other service aviation Bosses, all talking aviation readiness in front of the House Armed Services Committee on readiness. Now, what parts of the air boss job afforded you the most joy? And it sounds like you've already answered which ones caused the most anguish, but uh, I did have that prepared here. But what did you like most about the job? I think you know I spent a lot of time here in our headquarters, but would try and get out as much as I could to visit the fleet. And I think the chance to go either visit a carrier, talk to the to the sailors on the carrier, walk through the ready rooms, talk to the pilots in the air in the air wing, or go to the flight lines and visit sailors and, and aviators on, in their element in the flight line. And those were always, you know, I do all hands calls. I talk to leadership teams. I talk to junior officers. And those engagements are always, you know, uplifting. You know, they you, you come away from those. I mean, there's challenges, obviously, but you come away from those with a really good sense of the people that are out in naval aviation doing all the good things that was partially described earlier. So I think those kinds of visits were, that was probably the, the most fun to do and the most invigorating for me. The anguish comes in the challenges with readiness, certainly, but probably anytime you have a mishap, that's where, it, as air boss, it really hits home. And we've got, you know, you know, the loss of a pilot or a crew, and then all the impacts on that, that family, those family members, our naval aviation family, the squadron, those always were were tough to uh, to work through, and it's 
it's part of our business. It's a very risky business. And fortunately, we didn't have lots of those, and we did a pretty good job, I think, managing those risks. But that's always, um, that caused a little bit of anguish. And I alluded to the physiological episodes, and that kind of came up last March, April. And um, that was a challenge for myself and for Sinatra at the time, Admiral Del Bull. We worked through those challenges there, I think, took a long pause in our production, which was, you know, unprecedented. But we moved very quickly to fix things in T-45s and I think put us now eventually on a place where we're back at right now at full production and doing some very, um, very good training now. Now, when you say production, you mean a flight students, right? Flight students, So exactly. imagine a pipe with the water going through, students or the water. If all of a sudden there's an interruption, somewhere down the way, there's still an interruption, whether it be at the squadrons or even probably it's felt through the whole career of whoever would have been in that space where the interruption happened, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, you're exactly right. There is a, there's sort of a gap, a dry spell, if you will, from that pipe analogy. Moving through the fleet right now, it'll get to the fleet, we think, this coming summer. When the the from the time we we stood down in beginning of April till we back up flying again, probably not till full production in late October, early November. So that was four or five months of non flying. Wow. So that will eventually that will impact us. And and Sinatra's doing a great job catching back up now. But again, that has to move through the system and eventually through JO tours and onto department head tours. Mm-hmm. But we're watching it closely, and we've done this, but we've managed this kind of a of a challenge before. Right. So the best part and the worst part was the people, in a sense, because the best part is the people, and, of course, the worst is when something happens to them. So, all right. Now, in your outgoing uh, change of command remarks, you made light of the fact that as Air Boss, you never thought you would have to answer for inappropriate sky art. And if the listener is not familiar, there was an enterprising young crew up in northern Washington state who decided... The environmentals were such one day that they could draw a nice big picture up in the sky. What, what effect did that episode have on uh, naval aviation? Well, I, uh, I'd like to think that there were some good lessons learned out of that. It obviously came at a time where the environment back in D.C., the, you know, the, the things that were issues then, you know, political sensitivities, political harassment, fraternization, those kinds of things, and it really sent, clearly sent a message that isn't, the message of what naval aviation represents, and and so the timing was bad. I had actually had CNO and the lead, all the four star leadership of Navy were in San Diego that that day. We were having a, a fleet sync conference, and so we went to a social at the Third Fleet Commander's house, and and CNO shared with me a picture he had on his his oh, iPhone. Oh, he got and it I'd, first. Huh? I'd been briefed, but I hadn't seen oh, okay. the picture yet. And said, sir, I've got it. We'll, we'll take care of this. And clearly embarrassing to naval aviation. And the next morning, there were some, other, some more discussions and a sense of urgency, I think, on his part and maybe the four-star leadership to move out and get this handled. And then I think after a little bit of time, he actually called me over the weekend and said, well, this is you know, not worth killing a career over. So maybe sit down with your XO and CO, have a discussion with them. I said, it's okay, so, you know, I said, I've got this. It'll be, it'll be above the XO and CO. And those two, the, the pilot and the WIZO, actually came to see me after an investigation, our standard uh, Field Naval Aviator Evaluation Board investigation. They sat at the end of the table as we had this discussion. And I, I mean, they, I think they both thought that this could be worth losing wings over. And I, you know, I got them right to that point and then said, no, this, you certainly have embarrassed naval aviation, but you learned your lesson. Clearly, there's some mea culpa work that's going to happen. They both went back. We're briefing their, the communities in Whidbey. The pilot was headed to a job in the training command. I said, when you get to your next squadron there, you'll have a the similar conversation with them. And, um, and I think the last thing I left them with is if 
I ever find out that you get a call sign related to this event, <laughs> you can you can go wherever you want with that one, Jello. I said I will come track you down and I will take your wings. And I you know I I can't do that right. you know now it's already happened. But I think it impressed upon them the severity of what they had done and why it didn't align with our values in naval aviation right. clearly. But I think as naval aviation across the forces, they looked at that and saw that they there was clearly some penance to pay, but that they didn't lose wings. I think that was the right message to send. Sure. You know, society's different, I think, today it than is. it was when you came in. I mean, I'm not condoning the behavior, don't get me wrong, but I do think we have to attract the kind of people into this profession that do silly things in liberty and other places. And, and again, it, it's just, it's tasteless, but I kind of thought it was funny. But it's just, it's unfortunate because the environment we're in, there's just no tolerance for something like that anymore. And I've always said, have your fun in a way that you're not going to have to explain it later to anyone. You know, yeah. you can still do silly things and, and goof off, but it doesn't have to be something where millions of people in Seattle have to see it. So Right. No, I think you characterize that very well. Okay. So in preparation for this interview, I announced to my audience that I would be taking any of their specific listener questions. So with your permission, I'd like to pose a few from the listener themselves, Admiral. So Vico Vilak asks, what would a future Navy plane look like, let's say, after the F-35? So I presume he's specifically talking fighter and attack here. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine, as we look at the introduction of Unmanned, we'll talk a little bit about that, I think, with one of the other questions, um, the shape of... Of, of an F-35, and we, we talk about, you know, radar evading stealth capabilities. I would I can't imagine we would develop the f- sixth generation. We call F-35 a fifth-generation platform. Our Super Hornets, fourth-generation or four-plus, given some of the capabilities we're, we're putting in that in those later versions of the Super Hornet. But a, a sixth-generation platform, I think, you know, you'll see... Something similar in F-35 design, maybe a, just a wing, a, a flying wing kind of a, a shape, which is some of the some of the shapes that have been, have been rolled out as part of our unmanned carrier platform competition. I think we're our, what that platform would look like, whether it be manned or unmanned. I think we'll probably. I've heard the old Secretary of the Navy say F-35 was the last manned aircraft we would have. I don't know that that is a true statement. There's a lot of things we're doing in the artificial intelligence world and ability to connect unmanned platforms with the right, I guess, software and, and um, um, networks to be able to fly together, integrate and share information together, which really infuse all that information, which is F-35's value. So I, I think it, in just in terms of what it will look like, it will look like one of the models we've got for this future unmanned platform, I would imagine, some kind of just a delta wing or wing body tail like an F-35. And then there will be a way that it operates together with the force of the future either, you know, just through the networks and, and information passing there or the way we communicate with our unmanned now or even including artificial intelligence in the way that that platform operates and works with other platforms. And I get that question on the Fighter Pilot podcast all the time. You know, what do you, they ask me, what do you think will happen with UAVs? And of course, I always use my standard fallback. If you remember some of the movies like, you know, Back to the Future from 30 years ago that all or take place now, they all thought we'd be a lot further along than yeah. we are. Oh, yeah. Um, but one answer I will sometimes give is I could maybe see a, a UAV wingman uh, maybe who's flying alongside a manned aircraft, because I still think there's a lot of value, and it sounds like you do too, in having the man in the loop, and I use the word man, of course, but uh, I have a caveat on episode zero about gender pronouns on the show. But, you know, there there is a need, I think, still, and, and certainly artificial intelligence will make a difference as well, but uh, for people in there making those split-second decisions, because in a lot of cases, we still do it better than a machine. But 
maybe what, reconnaissance, surveillance, aerial refueling, those could be some of the first steps for UAVs in the Navy? Well, that's, uh, that's exactly where we're going. Right now, we're flying an unmanned helicopter, the Fire Scout, MQ-8 Fire Scout. We just delivered to the fleet the first of the MQ-4 Tritons, which is a model after the Broad Air Maritime Surveillance um, Global Hawk. It will be a wingman, a counterpart to the P-8 Poseidon that's coming along. So it will do large area maritime surveillance and just, I mean, suck up lots of information about what's in the maritime environment and share that information across the force. The Fire Scout does the same thing. We've also armed the Fire Scout, so it can now be a wingman to a MH-60 Romeo or Sierra and certainly can fly when those platforms are not flying. And I think been integrated very successfully in our littoral combat ships and in some of our other smaller uh, surface platforms. I expect that integration will continue to happen. We're just learning the first orbits of those Tritons will be in the Pacific fleet this coming late this year. So uh, whether that plays out exactly how we see it, that I think will be more of a strategic asset that the fleet commander might use not a strike group commander, which is why we got to the point or why we pushed so hard to get an asset that the carrier strike group commander owns that flies from the the carrier deck that's part of the air wing that is unmanned. That's where we are with MQ-25. We're now in the final phases, I think, of the final uh, industry proposals and down selection to the one that we'll go with. And that will bring us, you said it up front, it's a surveillance and understand what's going on around around the carrier strike group. It's also... And this is where we, you know, kind of worked through with Secretary Work, uh, DepSecDef, a while back when he looked at the other ISR and intelligence surveillance reconnaissance platforms that are available to the strike group commander. He said, you don't need that in the strike group. I said, well, you absolutely do because those assets are strategic assets. They get drug off for higher priority missions than the strike group, you know, what's happening in and around the carrier and the strike group. So we need one we can control and manage from the flight deck. And I think that's where we'll get. It will be a tanker slash, you know, I'll say a big T and a little I for the ISR. I can say that now as, <laughs> you know, old air boss. No one can hold you to it. Right? The, well, the, <laughs> I mean, the tanker mission is key as well. I think it'll extend the reach of the air wing. We still have between the how far our strike fighters can go now and the weapons that they are carrying to reach out and touch other surface or air platforms are pretty good. Now, adding additional 500 or so miles from a, an unmanned mission tanker will extend that reach even further. And I won't get into the numbers of that, but it will really help, I think, in address some of the folks that say we've gone from an air wing that used to go 1,000 miles now to one that just can barely get to five or 600. But I think the combination of a, of a tanker that can also do some maritime surveillance for you, give the strike group a better sense of what's going on around it, and eventually get to the point where that platform can fly in contested environments. I think that was where we were going early on before we got redirected and sort of adjusted in our in our procurement process by the Deputy Secretary of Defense. So then I think there'll be something that evolves after that when we talk about what's the future beyond F-35 or those unmanned strike fighters mm-hmm. or strike and attack airplanes. I think it's a bright future. Unlike the Air Force, I don't believe, at least when I left, we were not did not plan to create a unmanned community like the Air Force has done. They've got a lot of challenges with that, and I'm hopeful that Admiral Miller, as he continues to move forward and starts to deliver some of these platforms, that we can stay with that concept. We will do you know, single sea tours or shore tours where we operate those unmanned platforms, but then go back to flying your regular platform in the fleet. It's working in, in the Fire Scouts. It's working in the Triton so far, and we'll, we'll start to evolve that. And I'm hopeful we can do that with the platforms that go on our, our carriers and operate from with our air wings. So the air crew might take a tour off and fly those as well. Exactly, but then get back right back in the cockpit. Right back, so they kind of mix and match. Okay, very cool. 
All right, my next listener question is from Jim Hendershot, who wonders, do you see the increased reliance on computerization and networking as a risk due to aggressive hacking efforts by various governments and other organizations? I think you've got to think about that. And I know as we work with NavAir in delivering platforms and then obviously all the ways that those platforms are going to talk to each other through the networks, absolutely critical that they happen. But networking is both a risk and a mandate. We have to be able to share information and not just with our own Naval Aviation Forces, but with our other joint partners as well, with Marine Corps, F-35s, and other assets they're, they're flying, and then certainly with Air Force as well. But I think because of that we build in and think about the hardening and how we're going to protect those systems as we go through the acquisition process, eventually deliver them to the fleet, there will be the, the ability to respond and adapt and add additional hardening or mitigations as we deliver those to the fleet. There is an increased reliance, certainly, but I think we're managing the risks associated with that. And it's a mandate to do all of that, to sense what's out there, share that information. It has to happen in, in hardened networks. And we've got to ensure that we are gonna that we can do that without the enemy enemy finding out. So sure. we'll keep those efforts up and, uh, and very much focus on ensuring that that is, um, happens in a secure environment. It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, Call Sign Primetime, and my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone, available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. I don't know if you remember where you were on December 31st, 1999, but I was deployed on John F. Kennedy. And if you recall, at the time, the Y2K was a big issue. Yeah. So we actually oh, yeah. did not fly that next day <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, all these jets are electronic now. So they turned everything all day and made sure everything was good. And then yeah. we flew January 2nd. Yeah. So, uh, it's, it's a concern. Yeah. All right. Uh, another listener question. Peter Johnson wants to know if you see the ongoing demarcation lines between Air Force, Marines, Navy, and then the possibility of a Space Force staying or potentially merging of air assets, including UAVs. I kind of alluded to in the last in the last discussion we had on as we start integrating and networking our forces. And this, this will happen, as I said, not just at the air wing or strike group level, but it'll happen as we start operating carriers with amphibious strike groups. Mm-hmm that'll be operating F-35Bs, which we're already doing right now in the Western Pacific. And then in any major contingency, we may be the first ones there with a carrier and the air wing, the strike group, but we're going to quickly be followed with our Marine Corps partners and Air Force partners. And and it will be an all-in effort. All three will be there. So interoperability will absolutely be critical. We've learned a lot as we've moved into a single F-30, well, it's really three versions, (laughs) but into the F-35 and the the uniqueness of trying to build three services requirements with one platform. And I was just reading the other day where it looks like we may go away from that joint program office to the three services kind of managing their own unique platforms. But And that's probably the right thing to do. But I see, at least in until we get to space, and I'll talk space here in a second, 
we'll all keep our, I, I think, kind of our unique identities, but as we focus and train and work up together, certainly with major exercise like you're familiar with down in Fallon or in Nellis with the Air Force or up in Alaska, we do a lot of a very good training up there. We bring everybody together, and we, we have to do that so that we are ready for that major contingency. As we move into space, that's a, you know another domain that we clearly are paying very close attention to. In fact, you've watched in the press, we've talked about do we want to create a, a combatant commander for space. And it, right now it resides under strategic command, mm-hmm. the STRATCOM commander, but I, I think we'll eventually get there. And as we move into space, there are certainly requirements that Navy will need that are fed from space. I mean, as we try and characterize that battle space, it includes not just the platforms we're flying here, but certainly satellites, anything we might put up in space, other sensing platforms that we would have to be connected with. So whether we put that under one command or if we continue to have our own service equities met, but in some kind of a joint world, you know, I, I think that's, that's where we'll be. But we certainly need to integrate those future platforms up in space as well. Sure. Now, I've always thought of the, you know, making everyone fly the F-35 is a lot like making every family drive the same car, right? So some families yeah. have four or five kids, and some quote-unquote families are one successful business person who maybe wants a sports car. So, uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's tough to do, but I understand for the same reasons we talked about before is that someone else is in many ways controlling our destiny when it comes to the purse strings. All right. Uh, next question is from Kai Aiello, who is my brother. He asks, how concerned should we be at recent reports on aviation readiness? So I would answer your brother. I was very concerned. And that was, as I've talked about already, the probably the most challenging piece of the job for three years was aviation readiness. I do see the trends that are in the right direction. After the years since sequestration, as we dug a pretty big bathtub, I said divot earlier, but I, I really, it's, it's, a, it's a bathtub size hole we dug. And and as we talked to Congress and kept our narrative going, and it was carried by CNO, by the vice chief, certainly carried a lot of water force in Congress, making sure that they understood that that was the. And CNO used to talk about sort of the confluence of three major things: was the lack of the budgets, the uncertainty of those budgets, and the continued op tempo, where demand for forces, our forces, was exceeding our ability to supply those forces. But I think there's an understanding now that, and even up through the highest levels in the in Department of Defense, that we've got to be realistic in what the combatant commanders ask for. If you look at the 18 budget, 19 budget, and what the Congress has done to support those increased readiness numbers in dollars for both readiness accounts, the readiness enabler accounts, and all the things that go into the, to building and generating readiness. I think we're in a inner trajectory that's good, a glide slope that's good, as I, as I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. I think the worst is behind us. As we went through sequestration in 2011, it was probably two to three year lag before we really saw the, the long-term effects of it and, and started having the hard conversations. It, and in the same way, you know, infusion of dollars is going to take a couple of years to get us back on the right glycep. So we were asked, you know, at the very end of my tour, so we just gave you a bunch of money. I expect to see the yeah, readiness turn around. <laughs> I go, well, it's not going to happen overnight. Right. You know, we didn't get here overnight. It will take a couple, a couple, two to three years to, to get us back in a good place across naval aviation. So I'd say, you know, I was very much concerned. I know Admiral Miller, new Bullet, as the new air boss, is still very concerned, but I, th- I think we're heading in a, in a good direction from a, a readiness across naval aviation. Excellent. All right, so several poignant questions were submitted by a gentleman named Kevin Miller. I believe you may know him. Uh, I wish we had time to address them all, but let's limit it to simply this. The, the T-45 Gossock is about 30 years old. How long will we fly it, and what's next? Well, first, uh, I thank Kevin for the 
the, <laughs> the list of questions. I'm, I'm sure we'll, if we've got some time, I even get to a few of those other sure. ones. But Kevin was a, as I said, in my, uh, my three tours, uh, that was a, a CO, XO of the Gunslingers. When I was XO, Kevin was the hoser, was the skipper. And I just, I loved working with him. And now he's done a very neat job of capturing, you know, what aviation life is about in his numerous books and as a well-published author. So, and a great friend. So insider secret real quick. I've yeah. actually already interviewed him for this show. I good. just haven't played it yet. So yeah, awesome. people are going to find out about that. Well, that'll be good. He does a great, I mean, his his way of telling those stories and, you know, he he joked with me, he says, he said, you'll remember some of the personalities, but I've chose not to use the, the names. <laughs> Different names, and, that's yeah. right. And it's, it's really, it, it, he does a nice job of capturing the challenges, the frustrations, the culture, and sure. the uniqueness and, I'd say, goodness and excellence that is naval aviation. So back to the T-45, it is about 30 years old. We're in the middle of a service life extension on that platform as well. Right now, we're starting the initial, or we're starting the initial look at what will come next. But we expect that service life extension to get the T-45 up through about 2030, 2035. So it's going to go for a little bit longer. I would imagine the follow-on, we looked at some combination things with Air Force, their trainer and our trainer. The question that comes up now is, will we go to the boat? We practice our carrier landings as the final phase of our training command qualifications um, before you get your wings of gold and move on to train in the fleet. As we talk about some of the, and we may get to them a little bit later here, but some of the things we're doing now in our Super Hornets, we've got some um, improved flight um, control modes where you can bring the thing aboard. I mean, it's very simple to land. We'll get to the point where maybe... It's easy enough to land that you don't have to go to the boat or go to the ship for those those training command carrier calls. Which consumes a tremendous amount of resources it, right it now. It does. It does. So the first time you ever would ever go to the boat would be in the fleet. Now, that's that's an mm. option we talked about. Mm. There's still some tremendous – there's still value, I think, in seeing the aircraft carrier, you know, for the first time. And we only go in the daytime in the training command. But seeing it for the first time there before you jump in and do it in the in the fleet. But I, I would imagine as we get to most of the communities with some version of the, we call it magic carpet, but it's a um, precision landing mode. And it's not automatic landing mode. The pilot is still flying, but the cues that he gets and the way it's the, the feedback mechanism from what he sees in the heads-up display and the flight control surfaces is totally different. And you can do that in a digital digital airplane. F-35 has it. F-8, all the F-18 versions will have it. So... At some point, the only one that won't have that kind of thing is an E2, E2Cs and Ds um, as they come aboard. So I imagine it will probably be a combination trainer will do with the Air Force. It will be the future beyond T-45, but there's still a lot of life left as we get through the midlife upgrades on that platform. Okay. Benjamin Libby wants to know, what is the plan to manage the performance and capability gap that will occur when the V-22 replaces the C-2? So that's, that's already happening. When I was the Air Boss, we had a couple of opportunities to take the V-22 to the ship and operate it how we would during normal cyclic operations, the, you know, how the air wing normally operates. And there were some, I mean, there's, there are some, some challenges with the V-22, mostly because of the jet wash or the downwash from the, from the rotors when it comes in and hovers and lands. But it gives you some flexibility in and around the flight schedule, which far outweighs the, and we talk about, you know, performance and capability gap. It's just a little bit less than what a COD can carry, a few less people, a few less pounds of cargo, and it's not significant. Um, but we can put an F-35 engine in the V-22, which would have been a little difficult in the C-2. In terms of performance, the legs are are not quite as long, but it still gives you the connector you need between all of the all of the strike group assets and the ability to 
to replenish and do that global sustainment mission that, that the C2 did very well. Uh, so there's the performance and capability gaps are not significant, but when you look at the flexibility that a uh, vertical short takeoff platform brings to the air wing and the ability to operate outside of normal flying hours, where you don't have to man, you don't have to all the catapult man up all the catapult and resting gear equipment. You can just bring them in. You can land it at night. We we don't do passengers at night, but we bring cargo at night. You wouldn't do that on the COD. So it right. gives you some flexibility. I think that will outweigh the the small or minor gaps in performance and 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 tonnage that it can carry. Okay. And finally, for the last listener question from Max Schumann, who I believe you know, one of us, he asks, as the threat stick grows well past so-called medium range, where and how will we train in air-to-air? This familiar airspace has seemed too constrained. Now, I should have probably set this up a little better. So I believe what he's talking about here is, you know, currently, or at least in the last 20 years, we're used to a missile that can travel so far from our adversaries, but that capability is increasing, and they're able to reach out at longer ranges, but our training airspace is somewhat constrained in our ability to simulate that. So I think he's asking about our training capability specifically, probably Fallon in, in his mind. Yeah. No, I, uh, so Toto, great question here. And one that I, as I came to the job, I talked about kind of the current readiness, the future readiness, and then really the future training environment was one of the other pillars that I discussed at length. And it was, it was to address this very thing. Our premier training range up in Fallon, as you start to operate with those weapons that have a longer range. And then certainly, in addition, as you bring on the F-35, which, you know, we're used to flying, you and I were flying, you know, in combat spread at, you know, a mile and a half to two miles or a, a wall of fighters that might be five or six miles wide. Well, the F-35 is flying, you know, 10 miles wide or a wall of fighters that are 40 or 50 miles wide. And then their ability to sense and look at stuff downrange far exceeds the limits, the vertical and lateral limits of the airspace in Fallon. The other thing that we're seeing, we're, we're being restricted, is an electromagnetic spectrum. And when you bring in, growl, add Growler, our, our um, E18Gs to that mix, and their ability to do some things with both sensing and jamming, the FAA doesn't, <laughs> doesn't like what we're doing. So there's, so what's that? what that drives us toward is having to do a lot of this in the simulated environment. And we have a, um, we're successful in developing or building and it's up and running now, an air defense striker facility up in Fallon, which where you can take uh, eight F-18s, you can bring E-2Ds, you can bring in Aegis, uh, I can't remember the term, it was Aegis that does all the high-end Aegis work. So you could integrate air-to-air the surface ships, the E-2D, and the F-18, and do it all in a, in a simulated environment, and, and just walk through lots of reps and sets, practice everything you would need to do before you ever, ever get out on the range. That will expand in the near future, within a couple of years, to not just eight, but 32 F-18s. Um, it'll be, F-35 will be in there, unmanned will be in there, E-2Ds will grow. The Aegis Baseline 9 is what it was, Baseline 9. Aegis will have three or four ships that you can integrate in. So that will be the air defense striking facility on steroids, but all in a, in a self-contained practice, full-up, high-end, long-range missiles that Toto's talking about here, both employing our own and defending against the enemies, all in a simulated environment. And then we can, and it'll give us the opportunity to work through much of that before we ever jump on the range. I think between... What we do in Fallon and trying to, and we're looking at ways that we can open up the airspace in the West to maybe link Nellis, Fallon, some of our overwater ranges to give us the ability to more realistically replicate what we'd have to do um, in combat. Same thing up in, in Alaska. Lots of airspace up there that we, we go once a year, I believe, to a major exercise up there. So 
I totally agree with with Toto and his assessment that we are our airspace is too constrained for the tactics and techniques and procedures we're going to have to employ in the you know in the next you know five to ten years, and so that's driving us into a virtual and constructive environment. And then we'll eventually link in the live flying with that, and I think it'll give us um, the ability to practice, train to the very high end fight without having to do it you know live all the time. Admiral, I know in your training in Fallon, you've dealt with this too, is the white air, as we call oh, yeah. it, the uh, airliners that are going. And I want you to know now that that's me. I'm, I'm the problem <laughs> for Fallon people. I have flown in my airline capacity to the north, to the south, east, west, and even right over the top of it, depending on what they were doing. Yeah. I don't know. It was a Sunday. Yeah. So, I, But just the other day, we went from Seattle to Phoenix, and we went right down the east side of the range. And I can tell you that airlines are going to squawk if you did try to expand it because it, it costs them money yeah. because they have to fly farther. So I, I am now part of the problem. You'll be yeah. happy to know. I've switched <laughs> to the other side. Well, you can be our a, uh, a messenger for us. There then. you go. Yeah. That's right. Oh, the insider. Well, Admiral, as we wrap up, here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we have two main target audiences. The first is a group of men and women of all ages who are fascinated by anything having to do with combat aviation. Some of these folks live here in the U.S., some live abroad. But speaking in your former capacity as Air Boss, what would you want your fans to know about the state of naval aviation today and going forward? Well, I think the first thing is, just, is that despite the challenge I discussed, the readiness over the last few years, and we didn't get too far into the retention piece, but that's gotten a lot of press lately, and we certainly have a huge advocate in our Chief of Navy personnel um, who has supported us in some unique ways to incentivize service. And I'm talking monetary bonuses and things like that. But as I, as Air Boss, I used to say, if we can fix the readiness piece, I think the retention will follow. As an old Commodore in Lemoore used to say, all good things come from up jets. And I think that's true. And so young men and women join naval aviation to fly, and they want to be good at their craft. You know, you did it up, you, throughout your career. And I think if they had up airplanes and were progressing through their, you know, their career progression, their qualifications as expected and getting, you know, unique opportunities on deployment to contribute to the what we do around the world, the, you know, the, the combat operations we're conducting right now in the Middle East, the very important deterrent operations and the presence that we provide in the Western Pacific, a very important part of the world, and then do a little bit better job of how we incentivize. We never, we'll never close the gap with commercial aviation, but I think if they're doing what they love and we can offset with a reasonable amount of monetary incentives, they'll stick around. And I, and I can see those trends starting to change. And as I said, we've gotten some great support from CMP. But I, I would say the state of naval aviation is good. It's, we started up front talking about the people, and I watch in those two strike group tours, what those young men and women are doing around the world, both in combat and in very sensitive parts of the world to operate with lots of restrictions and with huge strategic political impacts if they mess up and they don't mess up. They're that good. And I think as I look to the future, as we dig out, of, I mean, manage through the readiness challenges of today, look to the future and what we're delivering for that future air wing and those other platforms that will fly from exhibition airfields around the world. That future is very bright. And the technology, the, the, you know, the planes are coming. The people are the ones we've got to make sure we keep motivated and retain the best of the talent uh, as we move forward. So I'd say the, you know, the state of naval aviation is good, and I am very pleased to have turned over you know, to a very good friend and very capable officer and aviator, uh, Bullet Miller, who's continuing to do great things for the men and women in naval aviation. Okay. Well, the second target audience, as I alluded to, there are two of them. 
is young men and women who aspire to themselves become military aviators someday. What would you want the future generation to know about the state of naval aviation? I had a chance every year I go back to the Naval Academy for um, Aviation Night. It's a chance to talk to all of the up-and-coming seniors, the first class, who have selected naval aviation, and to just talk to them about the future, expectations, whatever platform, whatever community they get into. And it's a, it's one of those, probably one of the most, I mentioned getting out and talking on the flight lines and seeing the fleet, but probably one of the most uplifting evenings that you get to do. Lots of the D.C. flag officers all come up, throw on a flight suit, interact with those midshipmen. I don't have a chance to do that across um, ROTC units, but I sent them a video and a note to each of them that talks about what I try and characterize as is what I see as a, as a bright future. And so... If you want to join a, an organization where you can fly the very best in high-tech you know, platforms, work with some of the very best people, work through some shared sacrifices, but also some incredible shared successes, be part of a team, be part of something bigger than yourself. And still have fun. And still have a lot of fun, um, especially when the contrail layers all align. <laughs> so I, 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 you know, I did it for 35 years. I was out. My last visit to a carrier was on Carl Vinson before they headed out on deployment. And I got a chance to walk through all the red rooms, and invariably I would get the question, Air Boss, why have you done this for 35 years? And I, I, I said, I've, you know, I felt like in every tour that my wife and I would talk about, we looked at the next opportunities and said, there's still a chance and a, and a way to make a difference. And I said, we'll quit. We don't feel like we're making a difference anymore. And, and we just, I mean, it was nice to leave from the air boss position, a great, a great job there. But I said, we still feel like we're making a difference. And then as we would entertain and, and train new commanding officers, PXOs and PCOs coming up, we'd have a chance to spend time with them. We'd have annual 05 and 06 commanders conferences. And invariably we'd get to know those men and women that are leading naval aviation. And they are some of the finest that I've ever, ever worked with. And so the people and the camaraderie and those shared successes and sacrifices that we go through, you don't find at IBM. You don't find at American. You don't find at Boeing. Yeah. Um, it's a different bottom line. And that's why we've stayed, because I felt like I was making a difference and because the people that we work with every day are motivating, empowering, and just, just fun to be around. So I think the future is bright for anyone that's considering joining naval aviation. I wouldn't change my decision if I was going to go back and knowing what I know now or not knowing what I know now, <laughs> I would still look at it as a great opportunity and a, and a chance to make a difference. Now, I talked about two target audiences, but it is possible, although I have no evidence of such, that a yet third audience listens to this podcast with ulterior motives and does not wish us well. What would you want our adversaries to know about the state of naval aviation? Well, I've told them, you know, some of the challenges we've got. I, I've talked about the what I think is a very bright future. And we talked about the people. But I think when you look at what we do here in the United States, certainly in our, in our Department of Defense, we operate an all-volunteer force. And that's a unique challenge. So I think, number one, the people that are part of an all-volunteer force are unique. You look at some of the other forces around the world, other air forces or other militaries around the world who operate a conscript. It's still a draft where they just say, you're going to serve for a certain number of, of years. Right. And I, there was a, I can't remember, it was Admiral Willard. I worked for him at one point. He was the skipper when he had his carrier, and I think it was Carl Vinson. But he was the skipper of the carrier, and some Chinese admirals came aboard. 
and they didn't want to know anything about the, how the ship was running or the high-tech gear on board or the planes or anything. They want to know, how do you get men and women to do what they do down on the flight deck? <laughs> Volunteers to go do what they do. Because they, they, don't, they don't have that. And then you add the volunteer folks, the people who want to serve and want to be in our business with the training that we deliver and give them. And I think that's the secret sauce. Add that training and the kind of, I, I, would, I would hope, good leadership across the force, but training leadership with those quality volunteers that come in. And that's a recipe for success. And, and I, you know, I hope we don't ever have to get into a conflict anywhere around the world. But Naval Aviation is ready, and our joint forces are ready. So... I think we're in a good place. Sure. So you want them to know that our people are here because they want to be, they want to serve. We have the best equipment and the best training. And while we have our challenges, if you pick a fight with us, you better go crawl yeah. back in your hole because we're going to come find you and kick your butts. Yeah. I, and I, you know, I, I, <laughs> that's, that's what good, I wanted you good to good say. Way to put it. Yeah, we'll do that. I mean, I, there's, I mean, there's a, you know, you watch some of the things that other countries can deliver quickly in terms of equipment you know, missiles or, or airplanes or mm-hmm. even carriers. I think the Chinese are getting ready to launch their first indigenously built carrier. They're, you know, you look at that and you say, well, how can they do that kind of stuff? Don't we have the best engineers in the world? And I, I do think we do. I think our system can be a little bit, can work against us sometimes. Our bureaucracy, sure. our procurement and acquisition process ties our hands in some cases. But we still, you know, we still work through it. We still deliver some very good capability, I, I think, the best in the world. When you put it in the hands of those women and women we just talked about, I have no reservations about their success in a, in a conflict. Outstanding. All right, Admiral, well, we're going to wrap this up. And we've got two final questions we always ask here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. The first is, what does the future hold? And in fact, I actually do have one final listener question. Uh, JT Taylor wants to know when you and Peg are moving back to Virginia Beach. But <laughs> what's, the, what's the future hold for you? Well, that's, uh, that's a great question, uh, JT. Uh, <laughs> JT was a JO in 105 with me when I had command there and then also at the Hornet rag at one Oh six. And, um, he and his wife, Jen have been great friends for years. And I don't know that we're going to get back to Virginia beach, JT, but we're, you know, we've got a, a daughter who's a senior in high school out here. Now my wife found a little cottage in the hamlet of Coronado where we can at least get through the summer. And I hope to maybe have a sense of what we're going to do next by late summer or fall. But I don't know. We're, you know, we'll go anywhere. We'll look for the opportunity, uh, hopefully a place where we continue to serve in some capacity, whether it be, you know, in a, in a company that supports our men and women in uniform doing something or in aerospace or in education or in some kind of, you know, future energy, you know, that our kids will need or our, the future will need. So lots of things we're looking at, but we've taken some time just to relax and decompress a bit from three years as air boss, and, oh, I can which I, you know, I think both my wife Peg and I <laughs> needed to do. <laughs> and uh, and so once our girls get off and, and into college, then we'll have a chance to think about what comes next. Well, it's hard to walk away from a lifetime of serving and just not be in a frame of mind of serving. I mean, that's part of the reason I started this podcast is I know there's people out there who enjoy it. And I just feel it's just my way of sharing a little bit of behind the curtain on naval aviation, at least for starters. But certainly as I get more guests, we can talk Air Force and some of the other stuff I don't know quite as well. But all right. Well, our final question then, and I haven't even used your call sign out of (laughs) deference, but uh, Shu, Admiral Mike Shoemaker. So already I think people will figure this one out. But how did you get your call sign? And if it's boring, at least make something up or tell us what you would have liked to have been. Well, the <laughs> yeah, Maverick, you know, you know, yeah, so, that's right. uh, you know, it's one of those where, as you know, you know, your call sign typically comes from some play on your name or mm-hmm. some event you've done. Usually 
one that you know that you weren't too proud of. But you know, I went for the early part of my career through the training and the junior officer tours without, you know, luckily, not going without any major, you know, buffoonery. Uh, buffoonery, exactly. <laughs> and so shoe was easy; it stuck. I had a guy who ended up being a out of the Naval Academy that was a, a Tomcat Rio, and then, uh, but we would work out together. He called me Turtle was the talk call sign he had for me, you know, because the way I kind of lifted my neck up when we were doing bench press or something, you know. <laughs> So that was through the ca- academy. Uh-huh. It was Turtle, and then my younger brother was Subturtle. So, <laughs> so, and it, fortunately, that died away, and I was, you know, it was easy to be Shoe with yeah. the last name of Shoemaker. Right. I didn't hope for or aspire to anything any faster or funnier. Sure, but once you get to a like, two-star admiral or three-star admiral, can't you pick your own cool yeah. call sign? <laughs> well, then you get a lot of grief for doing that, I uh, think. Still, you know, you yeah. still do, huh? You can't do your own call sign review board. That's uh, okay. you know, unilaterally. Yeah. And as you know, if it's, if it's something you, you say you don't like, then it will stick even, oh, yes. even, even more. The so listener is familiar from episode two. That's right. <laughs> yeah, there's some good ones out there, and I was, uh, you know, fortunate to just to stick with a basic one. I would Stay imagine. Stay under the radar. Yeah, outstanding. Well, Shu, it has been an honor having you on the Fighter Pilot Podcast today. I do really appreciate it. On behalf of the listeners, I want to thank you for your 35 years of service and what you've done for this nation, and what sounds like you will continue to do in serving. And it's just been a real honor for me to have you because you lend credibility to the show. You're my senior ranking person so far to come on. Thank you. And I think you offered information that the listeners will really enjoy. So uh, before we sign off here, any parting shots? Uh, Anything else you want the folks out there to know? Well, I just say thanks to you, Jello, for the great work you're doing. This is, uh, I think, it's clearly filling a niche. Uh, It's helping Naval Aviation share about our mission and our message and our people. And uh, probably the last shout-out would be to my wife, Peg, who's been with me for much of this journey. And uh, um, as I, I did in my change of command speech, she's been uh, an amazing partner. And then, as you know, as you know, it's work-life balance is never – it kind of keeps getting further out of whack the more senior you get. And so she's been amazing with our two girls. And uh, so huge shout-out to her. And then, obviously, that goes for all of our family. Every one of our men and women in uniform is supported by a spouse – um, many are supported by spouses at home who put up with all the stuff we do, allow us to do what we do and love to do, and then support us through all the crazy deployments and everything else. So thanks for allowing me to join you, uh, Jello, and thanks for what you're doing for to support Naval Aviation. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure to do it, and I completely agree. That, you know, it takes a team, and certainly yep. with those of us blessed with a fantastic life partner, we are able to do what we do. Amen. So, Admiral, thanks so much, and uh, we're going to go ahead and sign off then, and appreciate you coming on the show. Great. Thanks, Jello. All right. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I know I certainly did. I learned a lot. Once again, a huge shout-out and thank you to U.S. Navy Vice Admiral Retired Mike Shoemaker, former Air Boss, for coming on the show. As always, we covered a lot of different acronyms, and we tried to explain them the best we could Uh, The CNO, you might be familiar with that one already, but that is the Chief of Naval Operations. That is the highest ranking or most senior naval officer in the Navy. He reports directly to the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of the Navy and is responsible for everything the Navy does. So that is obviously a high-ranking position, and as you could tell there, the Air Boss reports to him and talks to him quite frequently. Any other acronyms or new terms that we covered today, you will find on our website under the glossary tab. So use that as a reference if you like. And then if you weren't familiar with the sky art thing, we really didn't cover what it was. But a few months back, 
some enterprising young pilots up in the Seattle area drew a rather large phallic art in the sky and it was a little bit embarrassing but again if you want to go google that you can find it i'm not going to give it any more press than we already did all right well that will do it for this episode just a few final notes here the pax air expo is this weekend june 2nd and 3rd in patuxent river maryland so as we've talked about before if you are in the washington dc area go check it out parking and admission are free and the blue angels will be there always a great show also, the intro bumper music today and the closing music is from Jaime Lopez, who is becoming a part of the Fighter Pilot Podcast team. He helps us out now with our cool ripping tunes, and you can find him at rantam.com, and we'll link to that in the show notes. And the comms you heard in the opening bumper are from some F-16s that got lit up by several SAMs in Desert Storm 1 back in 90 or 91. And uh, they had a rough time, but I think they all made it out. I think one guy got shot down stroke four, but the rest of them egress. But pretty hairy time there, as you can tell from the pitch of their voice. I want to thank also our new Patreon division leader, Anthony Critchen Brown, who has come aboard on Patreon and helped fund and support this show. And everybody who's on Patreon and all the followers and listeners, thanks so much for making this just a really fun experience for me and my family and all of our guests. We enjoy putting this show together, if that's not obvious. I want to remind you that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. Thank you for listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Got a question for the show? Send us an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MOCK-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com and you can find us on all the usual social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. If you want to gain access to exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content and help support the show in the process, visit our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and share us with your network, and we would greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to share your opinion of the show on iTunes and anywhere ratings and reviews are offered. So that will do it for this week. We hope you enjoyed the show. We'll see you next time here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. See ya. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.